Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is an RNZ podcast. Susan Burdett came up again, and it was pointed out to Tana that there was a reward and he said he knew something. And I guess that moment, his life changed forever. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan, host of the Daily Afternoons program on RNZ. You're listening to Crimes NZ, a series where I talk with people who are connected in some way or other with serious crimes that have happened here in New Zealand. In this episode, we're covering the wrongful murder conviction of Taina Pora with journalist Eugene Bingham, who's covered the story for many years. I must give credit to uh, New Zealand Herald, former colleague of mine, Phil Taylor. He wrote a story in 2012 quoting uh, a former detective, or a detective at the time, Dave Henwood, who was expressing serious doubts about the conviction of Taina. I'd been a police reporter at the Herald, used to work with Phil, and knew how if Dave Henwood thinks this is unsafe, then there must be something really odd about it. So that was the beginning, really. Can you give us a bit of your background and how you became an investigative journalist and what makes that different to a a day-to-day journalist? Yeah, it's a good question because, in a way, all journalists should be investigative journalists, shouldn't they, really? Um, I started at the Herald uh, in the early 90s, 1991, um, worked in various rounds, uh, but eventually, and went down to the gallery, for instance, um, spent time overseas, um, but eventually sort of just found myself working my way towards the harder stories that take a bit longer. And I've been lucky to have a series of jobs where I do get the time to dig into things and spend a bit of time investigating. And the Tainapora case is probably the, the one that took us lo- you know, the longest time and, and was the hardest one to crack. We should mention where you're working now because you've got a great yes. role there. Yeah, absolutely. So I worked at TV3, started working at TV3 on this on the story with Paula Penfold. And then uh, in 2015, we left TV3 and we started at TV, at, sorry, at Stuff soon after that. And I've got a great role there where I continue to have time to dig into stories. And do you have a few stories on the go at all time? Because some of them don't follow the sort of the, the linear narrative, right? It's not like get up and work this one out today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Write absolutely. it up tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. It's um, Some of them can literally take years. Uh, we worked, we produced a story last year uh, about the firing ranges in Afghanistan and that took a number of years to be able to, from the moment that we first sort of heard about it and I started looking at it till the time that it was actually out in the public was years. What's the moment like, by the way, when you finally get to publish? Terrifying sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's good. I, you know, it's good. I mean, it's our job is to tell stories. And so, of course, once a story is out there, um, then that's a, it's a good moment. But, yeah, sometimes it's... Why you put it all out there. Well, you know, 
sometimes there are big implications for stories and uh, you don't rush into things lightly. You don't, you take people's, uh, you know, people's lives seriously. Um, sometimes there are, there are big implications for people and, and I don't take that lightly. So yeah, there's a little moment of a bit of nervousness when a story does finally make it to air or in print. What's the job of an investigative journalist? To listen, uh, to be curious, to spend time figuring things out, to understand uh, what's gone wrong. Um, I'm particularly drawn to stories about injustice, and so that requires sometimes listening to people who haven't been listened to and seeing where things have gone wrong and trying to untangle it, and sometimes that takes a long time. Is it about power? Yeah, sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Um, the powerful haven't, haven't listened to people, and Taylor is a classic case, uh, where the people in power didn't listen to him. He was saying, you know, from not very long after he was arrested, I didn't do this, and no one listened until Tim McKinnell came along in 2009. So, yeah, absolutely, it's about power. In fact, when you think of the powerless in society, um, Taylor Porter, it's a pretty classic example, right? Oh, you know, it's extremely sad. He was and is extremely vulnerable. And to see what happened to him is an indictment on us all, I think. Can you tell us a bit about him? Yeah, sure. Maybe maybe in the years leading up to the crime. Yeah, sure. So he he grew up in South Auckland. Um, He was, uh, his mother died when he was four. His father wasn't really on the scene. So him and his brothers and sisters ended up moving around family members um, he didn't find school very easy. He was a very, very talented sports person. And, um, you know, some people say if, if but for, he would have been, you know, representative rugby or league player. Wow. Um, a very talented musician. An extremely prolific car thief. <laughs> Once held a record for the number of cars he stole in one night in South Auckland. Um, so, he, yeah, he got into trouble quite early. But from all accounts, um, yeah, it was sort of car crime, that sort of thing. Um, and so had lots of brushes with the law. He had a child by the time he was 16, Chanel, and um, he, yeah, he, he was living with an aunt on and off who had sort of taken on the role of, of mother for him at the time that this all began. So what um, happened the night of the murder of Susan Burdett? Yeah, so Susan was an accounts clerk, she had a great circle of friends. She loved playing 10-pin bowling and was apparently a very talented 10-pin bowler, won lots of awards, prizes. Uh, she was out at Superstrike, which a 10-pin bowling place in Monaco. Came home. Uh, she lived alone, she'd say, and she came home to a flat in Papatoitoi, uh, had a shower and was brutally attacked and raped. She didn't turn up for work the next day. Um, eventually a friend came around and found her dead in her bed. And tell me about the investigation by police. Well, it was, I mean, obviously it was a a big case. This was a terrible crime. Uh, And so there was a lot of investigative power put into it. The police were desperate to find who'd done this. But after a year, they didn't have anyone. Uh, A reward was put up, $20,000 reward for information, uh, and, you know, but still after a year they had no one until 
Taina walked in the door. Okay. Mm. Under what circumstances did he walk in the door? Yeah, it's a little bit complicated. In fact, we need to sort of back up the truck a little bit with Taina's involvement. So the aunt that I mentioned who had taken him under, you know, who was looking after him, uh, she had actually reported him to the police as a suspect early on when he told her about a softball bat or she heard about a softball bat that he and some friends had found uh, at the Marako Velodrome. And it was in the media that a baseball bat or a softball bat had been used to bludgeon Mm. Susan. And she told the police. And Taina was actually brought in for questioning twice. The aunt became convinced that Taina was involved and uh, kept on ringing the police and saying, he's done it, he's done it. Um, there was a police, you know, obviously he was, he was questioned twice. He denied involvement. Uh, he happily gave a DNA sample. His DNA sample didn't match the DNA sample at the scene. And eventually the aunt's evidence was dismissed by a very senior officer as uh, irrelevant that she was uh, a conspiracy theorist, in fact, um, and was put aside. But then uh, just, about, uh, just about a few days short of a year of uh, after the crime, Taina was brought in for questioning, or he was arrested on a warrant actually for those car crimes, with some car crimes. Mm-hmm. He was brought in. Um, somehow the topic of Susan Burdett came up again, and it was pointed out to Taina that there was a reward, and he said he knew something. And I guess that moment his life changed forever. How long did it take from them? Uh, from then for police to arrest him on, on that case or, or to charge him? Yeah, so what happened was over the next four days, he was questioned about the Burdett case. And they became known, and they, they, were, they were videotaped, well, some of them were videotaped, some of those interviews were videotaped. They became known as the, the confessions of Taina. I don't really like calling them confessions mm. because when you look at them, he's not really confessing. His story changes, he gets things horribly wrong, he, you know, he can't describe Susan accurately. He can't describe the bed where, you know, where this crime happened accurately. He doesn't know that it's, he, he, you know, he just gets things so much wrong. Um, when the police take him to the scene, they say they want to take him to the scene where it happened. He gets lost on the way. Um, he can't point out her house. It's supposedly a house where this, you think you'd remember. Yeah. Uh, he can't he can't identify it. Eventually, the police pointed out, and he says, "This is the house we came to," which the, the sort of it's sort of a, quite a chilling when you when you watch the videos and you hear him say that. You just want to stop, pause it, and say, "No, no, no! Don't say that." Mm. It's it's you know it's, you don't know what you're saying. Um, so after those four days of of police interviews. The police believed they had enough evidence to charge him, and he was charged on the anniversary of Susan Burdett's murder. And he went to court? Went to court, uh, 17 years old, and in June the following year was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment, sent to Parimarimo Prison, where he spent most of the next 21 years with some of the most hardened criminals in the country. When you look at um, the evidence that the jury saw, are you surprised that they convicted him? Uh, it's really hard to you know to put yourself in their shoes uh, at the time. Um, of course, you know when I look at what I know now, I think how could this have happened? Uh, but you know, I guess that's the thing. No one ever really knows 
what goes on in, in a jury room. Mm. Here was this young kid who, you know, had a, a criminal history. He was, he gave evidence himself. He was quite, uh, he didn't come across well when he gave evidence, when he, when he was cross-examined. Um, it, it didn't go well for Tainer. And so I guess the jury just didn't look very favorably at what he was saying. He couldn't explain, although at that point he was saying, I was, I was lying. I didn't, I wasn't involved in this case. The jury didn't believe him <laughs> and he was convicted. Have you heard, ever heard from a jury member in the course of your investigation? Not from that case, but from a later trial. So he was, there was another trial. I don't know how much further you want me to get ahead, but there was a later trial and we did hear from a juror in that who said, uh, no, actually, sorry, I've got it wrong. It was in the, in the Malcolm Rayward case. Okay. So we've never heard of a, a Tainapora juror, but, it, but we have heard of, yeah, the man who was eventually convicted of the murder of Susan Bidetz. We've heard of one of his jurors. I'm talking to Eugene Bingham, by the way, who was uh, one of the investigative journalists uh, who worked on the Tainapora case, as it's sort of become known. It's the rape and murder of Susan Burdett. Um, but Tainer Porter's name has uh, wrongfully really been um, associated with that crime. Uh, and Eugene also mentioned Malcolm Brewa, who we will get to. So why was there another trial? Is that the next part in the story, the second trial? Yeah, so 1994, Tainer's in prison. Uh, yeah, he, the police case was that there was someone else involved because it, there had to be for the police case to be right because it wasn't Tainer's DNA that was found at the crime scene. So there must have been someone else. And what happened is that eventually uh, there was a, another investigation going on in South Auckland into a series of unsolved rapes. Uh, and eventually there was a connection made between the Burdett homicide and these other rapes. They knew that it was the same person, the DNA sample matched. And uh, eventually, in 1996, they identified that person as Malcolm Rayway. He was arrested and he was tried uh, for, he was eventually convicted of the rape of Susan Burdett and 24 other women, all brutal attacks, all those other attacks carried out alone in a very strikingly similar way, in ways that matched the crime scene at Susan Burdett's place. So he was convicted in, in 1998 of the rape of Susan Burdett, but the jury couldn't decide on whether he was guilty of murder. He was tried a second time um, on, the, uh, on the rape and murder of Susan Burdett and was eventually convicted of the rape, but they couldn't decide on the, on the murder charge a second time. So a stay of execution was put in place by the Crown, which means they wouldn't take another trial. After... Malcolm Rewa was convicted of the rape of Susan Burdett. He appealed and was granted another trial. So there was another trial in 2000. The police at that point really had a decision to make. Do we go after Tainer? Or, uh, after Tainer? Yeah, do we go after Tainer again? Or do we, do we look at it and go, well, Malcolm Rewa really, in every other case, acted alone. Why would he suddenly take a 17-year-old or a 16-year-old along with him to a crime scene. It just didn't make sense. Mm. Tainer's still in jail, by the way. Tainer was awaiting, awaiting a retrial. Uh -huh. um, so he, uh, the police found witnesses who were prepared to say uh, 
that Malcolm Rewa and Taina Porter knew each other. There's a lot of problems with that evidence, including people being paid, including one of them being a jailhouse snitch. Uh, but nonetheless, it went to trial in 2000, and again, once again, Taina was found guilty. So he went back inside. And here he was, feeling, I guess, I can't imagine what he felt, you know, just abandoned by the system, that he finally had hope in that something would happen, that he'd finally get out, uh, turned on by his family. His aunt had been one of the people who'd given evidence against him. She'd been paid to give evidence against him. Other cousins um, spoke How out against him. How's he been paid? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a very good question. Police witnesses, uh, you know, in that case, three of them were paid to give evidence or paid for their, you know, not, not it's a, it's a, they, they were paid, uh, yeah, paid to give evidence. So three of them received together $15,000. Um, and yeah, Taina must have just felt shattered to be back inside in 2000. Again, once again, staring down the barrel of a very, very long time in prison for a crime that he knew he didn't do. You point out, by the way, that a friendship or an association between these two men seemed pretty unlikely on the yeah. surface. Yeah, very, very unlikely. There's a big age difference. Also, uh, Malcolm Rewa, well, he acted alone in every other of the rapes that he was convicted of. He was also associated with the Highway 61 gang. Um, he was sergeant-at-arms, a bit of an enforcer, got the nickname Hammer at, for the Highway 61 gang. Taina was, uh, I guess... I'd describe it as sort of running around with the mongrel mob at the, at the time of the murder. He wasn't a member. He wasn't officially an associate. In fact, he was in trouble with them a bit. But the concept of the mongrel mob and the high, and some, somebody from the mongrel mob or hanging around the mongrel mob associating with somebody with, from the Highway 61 was just so improbable. And yet the police pushed ahead with that theory. So... Is the next part in the story when you get a, a sniff of things? Well, no, the next important part is 2009 when Tim McKinnell becomes involved. He was a private investigator by that stage. He'd been a, a young police officer in South Auckland at the time that Taina was convicted. Uh, and he heard stories. Senior, he, he says that uh, if you wanted to start a row in the police bar, you'd just bring up the name Taina Pora and right. cops would be arguing about it and there were many who believed that he wasn't guilty uh, so and, and Tim always that always struck Tim as unusual so when he uh, studied a criminal he did his masters of criminology he started he had a look at Tainer's case and eventually went to see Tainer and got his agreement to start looking at the case if it hadn't been for Tim McKinnell I really do wonder if Tainer would mm. still be in prison I really think he's he's an incredible person who um, you know doesn't get the recognition that he, he deserves for what he did for Taina. Was someone paying him to do that or was it just no, a project? It's all off his own back. Yeah. He did hundreds and, oh, I, I, no, I can't even estimate how many hours of you know, free work, um, time away from his young family, uh, time away from his business, uh, just because he really believed that Taina was innocent and that you know, it was up to him to do something. He brought on board Jonathan Krebs and Ingrid Squire, two lawyers in the Hawke's Bay, where he was based at the time. And together they formed a pretty incredible team, which eventually, you know, saw Taina freed. So can you talk us through what happens next and, and sort of your involvement as well? Yeah, so skip to 2012. This uh, Dave Henwood comes out in the Herald and Phil Taylor's story says, you know, I believe that Taina is innocent, an innocent man's in jail. That made 
Paula and I go, hmm, we both knew of Dave Henwood, knew that he wouldn't say things very lightly. Um, so we started looking at it. And I remember the moment we, we went and saw Tim in, we did a story for 60 Minutes, which was just reporting on the fact that, I wouldn't call it an investigation at that point, it was just a story that, you know, this person or people were having a look at Taina Pora's conviction. Um, but we went down and saw Tim, and I remember he sat us down in his office garage and showed us the tapes, showed us the videotapes. And when you watched them, you couldn't help but feel enraged that he was this young guy who clearly had no idea what had gone on, but he was still in jail, still languishing in jail, convicted of this murder and rape that he didn't commit. So we, Paula and I, decided at that point to sort of do something we'd never done before in our journalistic careers, and that was, uh, you know, we were going to put our stake in the ground and mm. say, Tony Poor is innocent, and we called our next story An Innocent Man, which was a big step for us, and we just spent the next few years really campaigning and digging up evidence, and the more we found, the more and more it was obvious that, you know, what had gone on. And uh, Phil Taylor kept investigating Michael Bennett, a filmmaker, worked on the case as well with his wife Jane. And eventually, you know, it took a long time for the public to kind of get behind Tainer, but eventually they did. Uh, he. How does that manifest? And what? How does what manifest? The public getting behind something. Yeah, well, eventually uh, there were there were free Tainer T-shirts. Mm -hmm. There was a hip hop song. Uh, and and people, uh, there were calls for inquiries. The police association even came out and called for an inquiry. Wow. Yeah, which doesn't happen lightly. Uh, you know, MPs were calling for an inquiry, and yet the police remained steadfast. And do I have it right that Tainer had actually been released on parole by then? It was um, around that time. It was around that time. So mm. it was 2014. Yeah, it was after the, well, a couple of years after the public campaign began. So he eventually got parole, even though he was still convicted. Um and it, there was a few bumps in the road there with his um, being released on parole, but eventually he was in 2014. And then in, and then his case eventually went to the Privy Council. Jonathan Krebs led the team that um, went to the Privy Council and appealed his case, and they heard his case. A really important step that should be mentioned is that when his videos were being played on television at one point, uh, a specialist in fetal alcohol syndrome disorder, FASD, Valerie McGinn, she saw the videotapes and she immediately recognised there's something wrong with this guy. He's this, There's an issue here. And so she got, in hold, got hold of Tim McKinnell. Eventually she carried out some tests on Tainer and she diagnosed him with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, as being on the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So, which of course, threw a huge uh, new focus on the case he, you know, was he, this a, he, he'd been the mental age of an 8 to 10-year-old, Valerie assessed, at the time of the murders, which explains his behaviour in the videos, um, explains the way that he acted. He'd, part of his condition is he wants to please people, and you see it when you, when you interact with him, but you see it in the videotapes. He's, he wants the police to be happy with him. He wants them to agree with, you know, he doesn't want to upset them. So 
um, that was crucial and it gave a breakthrough. And in fact, it was the breakthrough which led to the Privy Council deciding that there had been a miscarriage of justice and quashing ask, his convictions. I have to ask you, I keep thinking of the same scene, um, and I only mention it because it's a scene that a lot of people might have seen. It's um, in the Netflix series Making a Murderer where they're talking to, I think it's Brendan Dassey, mm, the young that's right. boy, and the police are really putting the pressure on and end up seemingly getting him to admit to a crime that he didn't do just so that he could get out of that room mm. and didn't really grasp the gravity. I don't know if you've seen that scene and whether yeah. it reminded you of the, of the... Yeah, it's it's complicated in that I don't think I don't think that the police set out to set up Tainer. I really don't. Mm. I don't think they... But I just think there wasn't the right amount of care shown and the alarm bells weren't listened to. The alarm bells that when he was getting so much wrong, Somebody should have been saying, well, in fact, people were. People were saying, hang on a minute, but they, were, they weren't they were listened to. Um, th- there should have been more caution around him. Of course, they didn't know that he had FASD, but there were moments in the, in the videotape when you look at it, he can't spell very simple words. He doesn't, he's asked, he's asked what a meter is, he doesn't know. He um, he's unsure of his left from right, things like that. It should have just made the police go, hang on, we just need to proceed a bit yeah. more carefully. They weren't, that didn't happen. I want to make sure we get the whole story. We've got about three minutes left. Mm. So he, um, his conviction was quashed by the Privy Council in London. Can you remember that moment when you yeah, got that news? absolutely. We were at uh, Michael Bennett, the, the filmmaker I mentioned. It was a gathering at his house. Tainer was there as well. And, uh, yeah, we, we, that's the moment it was announced and... Everyone was pretty happy, pretty happy. Tane was a bit overwhelmed, to be honest. He was quite quiet. I don't think he took it in very well. What's your view on the impact that 20 years in prison's had on him? Yeah, it's it's hard to describe. He was a guy who was, you know, he, he was vulnerable to start with because of his condition. He, you know, he didn't have much schooling. He was already, you know, in and out of trouble with the law. And then we throw him in prison for more than 20 years with some of the most hardened criminals in the country. And when he was eventually released, he was just, you know, put out into society. When the convictions were quashed, he had no, you know, no, no proper help from the system. Um, it's tough. It's really hard being Tainapora. How's he doing now? It's really hard being Tainapora, yeah. It's he remains vulnerable. He remains the person who was messed up for a long, long time. You know, when we, we when we eventually met him, um, and I remember saying to him, "How do you how do you do it? How do you how do you keep sane? How do you not keep angry?" And he 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 by that stage was very sort of zen like almost. He said, "Yeah, I can I can see how you would think that, but for me, I just take each day as it comes." Um, but he admits that for the first 10 years that he was in prison, he was very angry. He was in fights all the time and furious. And he's, he's quite a small guy, so he got beaten up a lot. He didn't have an easy time in prison, that's for sure. Um, times were tough. And that leaves scars. And he carries those scars today. You're just a journalist who covered the story. Um, and so probably you don't owe him anything. But it seems to me that you've been quite moved by the experience. Absolutely. You can't help but be involved in his story, but you know, without being moved. Uh, it's incredibly sad what happened to him. It's so unjust. It makes you sad, but it also makes you angry that it happened. Uh, it also 
you know, as much as it makes you mad, you also see the good in people, people like Tim McKinnell, people like Jonathan Krebs and Ingrid Squire and you know, people who help him now, Fiki Taito and others who, who go out of their way to help him in spite of a lot of challenges, in spite of a lot of, you know, obstacles. And so I guess that, you know, the, those sorts of things give, do give you hope as well. This has been Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. You can find more episodes of the series on the RNZ podcast page or on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. If you like this series, try Black Sheep. It's another award-winning RNZ podcast series. And along with other great podcasts, you can find it on our RNZ podcast page. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.